Volume One, Chapter Fifteen of Rob Roy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Fifteenth. Whence and what art you, Milton? After exhausting a sleepless night in meditating on the intelligence I had received. I was at first inclined to think that I ought, as speedily as possible, to return to London, and by my open appearance repel the calumny which had been spread against me. But I hesitated to take this course, on recollection of my father's disposition, singularly absolute in his decisions as to all that concerned his family. He was most able, certainly from experience, to direct what I ought to do, and from his acquaintance with the most distinguished Whigs then in power, had influence enough to obtain a hearing for my cause. So upon the whole, I judged it most safe to state my whole story in the shape of a narrative, addressed to my father, and as the ordinary opportunities of intercourse between the hall and the post-town recurred rarely, I determined to ride to the town, which was about ten miles' distance, and deposit my letter in the post-box with my own hands. Indeed, I began to think it strange that, though several weeks had elapsed since my departure from home, I had received no letter, either from my father or Owen, although Rashleigh had written to Sir Hildebrand of his safe arrival in London, and of the kind reception he had met with from his uncle. Admitting that I might have been to blame, I did not deserve, in my own opinion at least, to be so totally forgotten by my father, and I thought my present excursion might have the effect of bringing a letter from him to hand more early than it would otherwise have reached me. But before concluding my letter concerning the affair of Morris, I failed not to express my earnest hope and wish that my father would honour me with a few lines— were it but to express his advice and commands in an affair of some difficulty, and where my knowledge of life could not be supposed adequate to my own guidance. I found it impossible to prevail on myself to urge my actual return to London as a place of residence, and I disguised my unwillingness to do so under apparent submission to my father's will, which, as I imposed it on myself, as a sufficient reason for not urging my final departure from Osbaldistone Hall, would, I doubted not, be received as such by my parent. But I begged permission to come to London, for a short time at least, to meet and refute the infamous calumnies which had been circulated concerning me in so public a manner. Having made up my packet, in which my earnest desire to vindicate my character was strangely blended with reluctance to quit my present place of residence, I rode over to the post-town and deposited my letter in the office. By doing so, I obtained possession, somewhat earlier than I should otherwise have done, of the following letter from my friend Mr. Owen. Dear Mr. Francis, Yours received per favour of Mr. R. Osbaldistone, and note the contents shall do mr r o such civilities as are in my power and have taken him to see the bank and custom-house he seems a sober steady young gentleman and takes to business so will be of service to the firm 
could have wished another person had turned his mind that way, but God's will be done. As cash may be scarce in those parts, have to trust you will excuse my enclosing a goldsmith's bill at six days' sight on Messrs. Hooper and Gerda of Newcastle for one hundred pounds, which I doubt not will be duly honoured. I remain, as in duty bound, dear Mr. Frank, your very respectful and obedient servant, Joseph Owen. Post scriptum. Hope you will advise the above coming safe to hand. Am sorry we have so few of yours. Your father says he is as usual, but looks poorly. From this epistle, written in old Owen's formal style, I was rather surprised to observe that he made no acknowledgment of that private letter which I had written to him, with a view to possess him of Rashley's real character, although from the course of post it seemed certain that he ought to have received it. Yet I had sent it by the usual conveyance from the hall, and had no reason to suspect that it could miscarry upon the road. As it comprised matters of great importance both to my father and to myself, I sat down in the post-office and again wrote to Owen, recapitulating the heads of my former letter, and requesting to know, in course of post, if it had reached him in safety. I also acknowledged the receipt of the bill, and promised to make use of the contents if I should have any occasion for money. I thought, indeed, it was odd that my father should leave the care of supplying my necessities to his clerk, but I concluded it was a matter arranged between them. At any rate, Owen was a bachelor, rich in his way, and passionately attached to me, so that I had no hesitation in being obliged to him for a small sum, which I resolved to consider as a loan, to be returned with my earliest ability, in case it was not previously repaid by my father, and I expressed myself to this purpose to Mr. Owen. A shopkeeper in a little town, to whom the postmaster directed me, readily gave me in gold the amount of my bill on Messrs. Hooper and Gerda, so that I returned to Osbaldistone Hall a good deal richer than I had set forth. This recruit to my finances was not a matter of indifference to me, as I was necessarily involved in some expenses at Osbaldistone Hall, and I had seen, with some uneasy impatience, that the sum which my travelling expenses had left unexhausted at my arrival there was imperceptibly diminishing. This source of anxiety was, for the present, removed. On my arrival at the hall, I found that Sir Hildebrand and all his offspring had gone down to the little hamlet called Trinlay Nose, to see, as Andrew Fairservice expressed it, a wheen middencox pike ilk it is barnzoot. It is indeed a brutal amusement, Andrew. I suppose you have none such in Scotland. Na, na, answered Andrew boldly, then shaded away his negative with, unless it be on Fastern's Ian or the like o' that. But indeed it's no muckle matter what the folk do to the midden poetry, for they'd sicken a scartin and scraping in the yard that there's nae getting a bean or pea kept for them. But I am wondering what it is that leaves the turret door open, now that Mr. Rashley's away, it cannot be him, I trow. The turret door to which he alluded opened to the garden at the bottom of a winding stair, leading down from Mr. Rashley's apartment. This, as I have already mentioned, was situated in a sequestered part of the house. 
communicating with the library by a private entrance, and by another intricate and dark vaulted passage with the rest of the house. A long narrow turf walk led between two high holly hedges, from the turret door to a little postern in the wall of the garden. By means of these communications, Rashleigh, whose movements were very independent of those of the rest of the family, could leave the hall or return to it at pleasure, without his absence or presence attracting any observation. But during his absence, the stair and the turret door were entirely disused, and this made Andrew's observation somewhat remarkable. "'Have you often observed that door open?' was my question. "'Na, just that often neither. "'But I hae noticed it once or twice. "'I'm thinking it more hae been the priest, Father Vaughan, as they call him. "'Ye'll no catch any o' the servants gauging up that starred, poor frightened heathens that they are, "'for fear o' bogles and brownies, and lang nebbit things frae the nest wild. "'But Father Vaughan thinks himself a privileged person. "'Set him up and lay him down.' I's be cautioned the worst feebler that ever sticked a sermon out o'er the tweed yonder would lay a ghost twice as fast as him wi his holy water and his idolatrous trinkets i dinna believe he speaks good latin neither at least he doesna take me up when i tell him the learned names o' the plants of father vaughan who divided his time and his ghostly care between Osbaldistone Hall and about half a dozen mansions of Catholic gentlemen in the neighbourhood, I have as yet said nothing, for I had seen but little. He was aged about sixty, of a good family, as I was given to understand in the north, of a striking and imposing presence, grave in his exterior, and much respected among the Catholics of Northumberland as a worthy and upright man. Yet Father Vaughan, did not altogether lack those peculiarities which distinguish his order. There hung about him an air of mystery, which in Protestant eyes savoured of priestcraft. The natives, such they might be well termed, of Osbaldistone Hall, looked up to him with much more fear, or at least more awe than affection. His condemnation of their revels was evident, from their being discontinued in some measure, when the priest was a resident at the hall. Even Sir Hildebrand himself put some restraint upon his conduct at such times, which, perhaps, rendered Father Vaughan's presence rather irksome than otherwise. He had the well-bred, insinuating, and almost flattering address peculiar to the clergy of his persuasion, especially in England, where the lay Catholic, hemmed in by penal laws, and by the restrictions of his sect and recommendations of his pastor, often exhibits a reserved and almost a timid manner in the society of Protestants while the priest, privileged by his order to mingle with persons of all creeds, is open, alert, and liberal in his intercourse with them, desirous of popularity, and usually skilful in the mode of obtaining it. Father Vaughan was a particular acquaintance of Rashley's. Otherwise, in all probability, he would scarce have been able to maintain his footing at Osbaldistone Hall. This gave me no desire to cultivate his intimacy, nor did he seem to make any advances towards mine. So our occasional intercourse was confined to the exchange of mere civility. I considered it as extremely probable that Mr. Vaughan might occupy Rashley's apartment during his occasional residence at the hall, and his profession rendered it likely that he should occasionally be a tenant of the library. Nothing was more probable than that it might have been his scandal which had excited my attention on a preceding evening, 
this led me involuntarily to recollect that the intercourse between miss vernon and the priest was marked with something like the same mystery which characterised her communications with rashleigh i had never heard her mention vaughan's name or even allude to him excepting on the occasion of our first meeting when she mentioned the old priest and rashleigh as the only conversable beings besides herself in osbaldistone hall yet although silent with respect to father vaughan his arrival at the hall never failed to impress miss vernon with an anxious and fluttering tremor which lasted until they had exchanged one or two significant glances whatever the mystery might be which overclouded the destinies of this beautiful and interesting female it was clear that father vaughan was implicated in it unless indeed i could suppose that he was the agent employed to procure her settlement in the cloister in the event of her rejecting a union with either of my cousins an office which would sufficiently account for her obvious emotion at his appearance as to the rest they did not seem to converse much together or even to seek each other's society their league if any subsisted between them was of a tacit and understood nature operating on their actions without any necessity of speech i recollected however on reflection that i had once or twice discovered signs pass betwixt them which i had at the time supposed to bear reference to some hint concerning miss vernon's religious observances knowing how artfully the catholic clergy maintain at all times and seasons their influence over the minds of their followers but now i was disposed to assign to these communications a deeper and more mysterious import did he hold private meetings with miss vernon in the library was a question which occupied my thoughts and if so for what purpose and why should she have admitted an intimate of the deceitful rashleigh to such close confidence these questions and difficulties pressed on my mind with an interest which was greatly increased by the impossibility of resolving them i had already begun to suspect that my friendship for diana vernon was not altogether so disinterested as in wisdom it ought to have been i had already felt myself becoming jealous of the contemptible lout thorncliffe and taking more notice than in prudence or dignity of feeling i ought to have done of his silly attempts to provoke me and now i was scrutinising the conduct of miss vernon with the most close and eager observation which i in vain endeavoured to palm on myself as the offspring of idle curiosity all these like benedict's brushing his hat of a morning were signs that the sweet youth was in love and while my judgment still denied that i had been guilty of forming an attachment so imprudent she resembled those ignorant guides who when they have led the traveller and themselves into irretrievable error persist in obstinately affirming it to be impossible that they can have missed the way End of volume one chapter fifteen recording by felicity campbell wanganui new zealand